0: Thank you, Jim. Well, it's a blessing to be here together once again to look into the Word. I was thinking this week about uh, the life of Christ and just how he dealt with people. And so many times people would come to him with questions. Sometimes the intent of the question was to trap him. Sometimes it was uh, really to deflect his teaching rather than to accept it. But many times people came to him with the desire for um, truth, to learn, and to try to figure it out. And the thing is, with Christ, So sometimes the the question would would not answer the question, but the question behind the question. He would get to the root of it all. And uh, I'm obviously not Jesus, but we do have the Word of God, and the Word of God does give us some good answers to questions that we ask. I'll do my best to talk in a real high voice, because we're kind of uh, feeding back (laughs) a little bit here. Well, uh, we've got quite a few questions here, and like we said last week, uh, we won't be able to get through them all, but I will sort of take the questions as they came and also as they are sort of organized uh, by topic. And here's one that, I kid you not, five or six people asked. So I thought we'd probably just go ahead and deal with this one. But it's the issue of, cremation? And what should be a believer's opinion or view on cremation? Is it biblical? Is it not biblical? Or what? Well, thankfully, this is a pretty simple and short answer. The Bible doesn't talk about it, doesn't prohibit it in that sense, and there, there isn't any reason that we can find in the Scripture to keep us from doing it. If this is... Uh, your preference as far as either your loved ones or yourself, uh, I don't see anything in the Scripture that, that uh, speaks against it. In fact, we, even have the, we don't have any examples of it as far as commands or, or godly people that did it, but we do have uh, the godly people of Jabesh Gilead that took Saul and Jonathan, remember, from the walls of Beit Shan and burned their bodies probably because they were so decomposed, but nevertheless, we do have that example. And in a sense, I mean, we all turn to dust anyway, so it's, I mean, it's not like God's got to have a lot to work with for resurrection. <laughs> He's going to figure it out, okay? <laughs> it's all okay. So if that's, if that's a personal conviction for you, or if you wonder if uh, your, your loved ones or your parents uh, chose that, then that's that's okay. Um, here's one that isn't really biblical, or at least the initial question isn't biblical, but it um, does have a, a biblical connection and then a very, very practical connection. And the question is this: why were the Jews allowed to be imprisoned, tortured, and killed during World War II? You know, there's a, again, there's several ways you can answer it historically biblically and practically. I'll just give maybe a quick reference to each of these. I'm not a historian uh, but uh, obviously just simple research you can see that the Jews weren't the only ones that the Nazis uh, killed during World War II. They were the ones that we best know and they were the ones that Hitler particularly targeted but there were also uh, gypsies, the disabled, homosexuals, Jehovah's Witnesses, basically, any Slavic people, like the Poles and the Soviets, uh, and, of course, anybody that disagreed with them, got, got to die. But the Jews were the main target, primarily because Hitler blamed them for Germany's economic woes after World War I. And um, if you read or are familiar with uh, what Hitler wrote when he was in prison, his book called My, My Life or Mein Kampf, his, he explains his whole jaded rationale for uh, killing the Jews based in, his, in uh, Hitler's view of racial hierarchy. And of course, the Aryan race, from his view, was uh, the top of the totem pole. So he, he killed the Jews for that reason. But biblically, you can also see behind it, Satan hates the Jews. And you can see throughout the Bible a number of times in history where there has been an attempt to obliterate uh, the Jewish race. Name a couple of those in the Bible. Uh, Esther, exactly, exactly. The whole the book of Esther focuses on the attempt to try to wipe out the Jews. Another one is in Exodus. I'm sorry? 80-70. Yep, 8070 was, I mean, really more destruction of the temple of Jerusalem itself uh, and the dispersion of the Jews but an, an eradication of them as a race. Here, where we, are you going to say that? The Maccabees? Again, more of a historical uh, Rome putting their boot underneath the Jews who rebelled against Rome. But uh, whether or not you, you see it in, in those specifics, certainly we see that Satan hates the Jews. And we even see in the book of Revelation that um, Satan tries, we've got the picture of the dragon you know, trying to kill the, the, the Lord Jesus. Um, Frederick the Great of Prussia once asked his court chaplain, prove to me that the Bible is true. And I don't know if this is urban legend or not, but I'm told that the chaplain said, uh, the proof is the Jews because they continue to live. Think about all the world powers or the races throughout history, like the Romans, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians. I mean, they have come and gone. These were world powers, and this little nothing of a, of a nation there in the, middle, in the center of the nations has somehow survived as a race that is distinct, that hasn't necessarily bred with others and gotten lost. They are still a distinct people for thousands and thousands of years because God has a future for them. There's also a very practical reason why the Jews were allowed to be imprisoned, um, when we go to, when we, if you visited Jerusalem and go to the Holocaust Museum called Yad Vashem, there is a line of trees that, that are planted called the Row of the Righteous and the Row of the Righteous Gentiles, and it, it, it refers to these non-Jews who risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust, some of which you know well, like Oscar Schindler, like Corey Ten and her family, and I always love to go by Corey, Corey's tree whenever we go to Yad Vashem just to remember her. But some statistics are pretty amazing. Of the 300 million people who lived under Nazi domination, 90% were Christian, and 60% described themselves as devout Christians. And yet the number of those who helped the Jews was less than 1%. So, to answer the question, why were the Jews allowed to be imprisoned, tortured, and killed during World War II, certainly there's a political agenda, certainly there's a biblical agenda or spiritual agenda, but there's also the very practical agenda that the Christians did nothing. And that is very convicting for us, but it's a great lesson to take away from this question. Well, and Harry makes a good point, just as far as the sovereignty of God, the Lord also Gave sim- great sympathy to the Jews and the United Nations by allowing the um, the state of Israel to be born, and then basically to have to fight it out for themselves. No one helped them. So, okay, let's uh, let's move on. Any follow-up questions? We're we're going to take a moment between each question or section of questions to just see if there's any follow-up questions to uh, if my answer wasn't clear or or not. Anybody? Hang on just a second. Get the, uh, get the mic to you there. there Thanks. You Wayne, my, my question was, why didn't the Christians engage? Why didn't? Was, was it fear or, or, or what? I mean, we could sort of ask the same question today. You know, why, why don't we engage with our culture? And because we want to blend. We want to have a peaceful life. We don't want to make waves. And frankly... You know, Corey Ten Boom put, and they put their family. One person's decision put their whole family at risk, and most of their family was killed, except for Corey. So, it isn't a good reason, but it is an understandable reason, and it certainly takes faith on our part. So, okay, let's uh, let's move on. The next question is sort of related. Um, Would you please recap and compare and contrast the various big covenants that God has made with his people? And that's a great designation, big covenants, because God made a lot of covenants in the Bible, a lot of promises, but there really are some big ones. And uh, there were four unconditional covenants made in the Old Testament, three of them to Israel. Uh, The first one is made to everybody, and what was that? remember? Noah, absolutely, yep. God's covenant that he would never destroy the world again by flood. Fire is fair game, but the flood, flood is never going to happen again. And many of these covenants have a sign to them. What was the sign of the covenant to Noah? The rainbow, exactly. The next one is the first of three unconditional covenants made to Israel or to the Hebrew people and that was the covenant to Abraham if you read Genesis chapter 12 the first several verses Outlines that covenant that God made three promises to Abraham that uh, Would give him land would give him descendants, which is the Hebrew race the Jewish race and would give blessing And the book of Galatians Particularly connects the blessing of Abraham being fulfilled in Jesus Christ So this is an unconditional promise to Abraham. It is going to happen, which is a, a foolproof reason why we have to have a resurrection because God's promises to Abraham have not yet been fulfilled. So there has to be a resurrection and a kingdom on this literal physical earth so that God can fulfill his promise to Abraham to give him the land, to give him the descendants, and to give him the blessing. Uh, The next covenant isn't unconditional, but it is to Israel, and that's the one that we often call the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. It was a temporary covenant, and it was given to Israel um, as they came out of Egypt. And it was basically, uh, again, Galatians tells us that the purpose of the Old Testament law was to reveal our need or Israel's need for a Savior, to lead them to Jesus Christ and uh, if, if you were to read in Exodus verse, uh, chapters 19 through 24, you would see this, this covenant laid out. And it was very simple. Uh, we've talked about this before, but it was uh, laid out and with blessings and curses. If you obey, God says, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you and it won't rain. And I won't provide food for you so that you will repent and you will come back. And God basically set up the pattern that if, um, if Israel wants blessing, repentance has to happen. And so that was the Mosaic Covenant. Well, it had a sign as well. Remember what the sign of the Old Covenant is? No. That was the, I, we skipped that with Abraham. The Abrahamic Covenant had the sign of circumcision. The Old Covenant, uh, Mosaic Covenant, the sign was the Sabbath. The Sabbath day. That was unique to Israel. So the next covenant is the one to David. And if you were to read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, around verse 16, you get the three elements of the, the covenant to David that God promised David that one from his house, from his dynasty, would rule on his throne, so on the Jerusalem throne, over an eternal kingdom. So house, throne, kingdom. And again, this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And Matthew makes that connection. In the very first verses of Matthew's gospel, he says this is about the Messiah Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. So Matthew's connecting it to Jesus. And finally, the, the last covenant is called the New Covenant. And uh, there's no sign that we know of for David's covenant. There's no sign that we know of for the New Covenant, none specifically mentioned. But if you were to read in Jeremiah, there are a few places in the Old Testament that talk about the the new covenant, but if you were to read in Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, verses 31 through 34, you would see the, the elements of this new covenant that God says, I'm going to give a new covenant, not like the old one. The old one's going to pass away. The new covenant is going to be a permanent one in which I will place my Holy Spirit within you, and I will forgive you of your sins. And Jesus said that this covenant started When he died, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant or the the new covenant in my blood. So on the cross, boom, new covenant begins. So these are covenants to Israel, but we get to enjoy the benefits of them, even though we're not Jews, by the same faith that uh, Abraham, David, and the rest had. What's that? Uh, Pentecost is not... We're not told that it was a sign, or the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we aren't told that that's a sign of the New Covenant, but uh, it could be. But we're just not told that it is, so we, we sort of have to guess. With David, maybe it was the unbroken line. With uh, the New Covenant, maybe it was the coming of the Holy Spirit, but we just aren't told in the Bible that, it, that it's the sign. All right, any follow-ups to that question? Okay. Here's a sort of related question, can we claim God's promises to Israel for our own? For example, Isaiah 43:1 says, "But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you; I have called you by name." Let's look at Romans chapter 9. Interesting, we were here just last week. Romans chapter 9. Can we claim God's promises to Israel for our own. You're reading the Old Testament and you're Bible reading and you see a clear promise to Israel. Can you circle that or underline it and claim it for yourself? Or is it something just to Israel? It's really a yes and no answer. Um, God's promises to Israel are God's promises to Israel. But the benefits of those promises sometimes spill over into other people's lives. Uh, when we think about, you know, when when uh, you have the beautiful picture that the New Testament gives of adoption, if, if you are adopted into a family, then you get to participate in all the blessings of that family even though you are not of that family. So the promises made to Israel are made to Israel, but there are some that we can actually participate in. So just to to reiterate, Romans chapter 9, look at the very... First, uh, let's look at verse three. Paul writes, "I wished I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, meaning the Jews, My kinsmen according to the flesh, who are present tense Israelites, to whom belongs present tense, the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, and the temple service and the promises." whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen." So Paul is saying, in fact, he's introducing a new section of Romans that is very, very helpful for us to understand. Remember Romans 8 ends with this wonderful promise that nothing's going to separate us from the power of God or the love of God. And a thinking person could ask and would ask, yeah, what about Israel? They rejected Christ, is God going to abandon all the promises that God made to Israel because they rejected? And Paul starts in chapter 9 and goes all the way through chapter 11, basically saying no, God has not rejected Israel even though they have rejected him because the promises are unconditional. And the implication there is they are still unconditional. This wasn't something that they lost now and now everything goes to the church. So flip now to chapter 11 in the same section and look at what Paul says about us, or about Gentiles uh, participating in this. Chapter 11, look down at verse 17. He uses this uh, metaphor, uh, not just adoption, but the metaphor of unnatural branches that are grafted into an olive tree. And he says, verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off, And you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. So you see, even though we are not native uh, to God's promises, we are grafted in, in the sense of using this picture, and we get to partake of the rich root. We get to enjoy the benefits of forgiveness of sins, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Those of us who have placed our faith in Christ will get to enter the kingdom promised to Israel for a thousand years on this earth. We will reign with Christ on this earth just like Israel will. So there's, there's still a distinction between Israel and the church, but there is a, a commonality of blessing that we get to enjoy right along with them. So, to answer your question, when we get to Old Testament passages, you always want to ask yourself two questions. First of all, what did this mean originally to Israel? And you can look very specifically and say, what was God's promise to them specifically? And then say, what's the timeless truth behind that promise? Because the timeless truth is what we want to gravitate to and say, okay, this is what we can apply in our lives. Here's a simple example. The blessings and the curses with regard to uh, the Old Testament. When God says, "If you if you don't, I'm going to put you in a place where you've got to be obedient in order for it to rain," and if you don't, um, if you don't rain, if you don't, if you're not obedient, it's not going to rain. Does that mean that if we're not going to, if we don't obey God, that it's not going to rain here? No, it's not what it means. But that's There's a timeless truth behind that. The way God was dealing with Israel that was applied in their context through rain. The timeless truth is God often puts us in places of utter dependence on Him, so that we will stay close to Him, so that we will obey Him. Now there's a timeless truth applied with rain for Israel that we can also apply in our situation. Why does God so often keep us so close to the edge of our means, financially, emotionally, etc., physically? health-wise, because it keeps us close to Him. That if we were just, you know, living in a place that we didn't have to depend on God, we probably would not. So, good, good questions. Any follow-up on that? All right, moving on. As a believer in Jesus, I know that I will receive a new resurrection body. What happens to non-believers? They have an eternal soul, but will they get a body reunited? Uh, Yes they do, absolutely they do. I'll I'll just read a couple of verses here for you, you don't need to turn there, but just listen to Daniel 12 verse two. Daniel 12 verse two says this, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So both the lost and the saved Both, we're told, will rise from the dead, one to everlasting life and the other to everlasting contempt. So both are eternal. Also in Acts 24, verse 14, Paul said this, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. We also see that in Revelation 20, which actually takes us to our next question here. The last day judgments, will you explain what these are and how these will differ for believers and for non-believers? So if we were to turn to Revelation 20, You don't have to turn there, but I'm just saying if we were, you would see uh, something called the great white throne judgment. And this is, we're told, where all of the dead are raised. And so this is the time where all of those unbelievers throughout all of history are resurrected in an eternal body and stand before Christ, stand before him at the great white throne judgment. And we're told there that they are judged. The books are open and they're judged according to their deeds. Not a pretty picture. And then it also immediately says, and then they're cast into the lake of fire. Because when you're judged according to your deeds, you're condemned (laughs) because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The great, great good news, though, of course, is that Jesus has died for our sins and that if in this life we place our faith, and the one who has paid for our sins, that we don't try to trust in our good works or anything that we do, but what Christ has done for us, that if we will believe that, then our sins are forgiven, and we will never appear before this great white throne judgment. Our sins are judged on the cross of Christ. So what is the judgment then for believers? If there is the judgment for unbelievers doesn't apply to us, what's the judgment for believers? This is called the judgment seat of Christ, and its specific goal is just for rewards. Uh, we, again, we won't turn there, and I'm not turning, not because it's not important, but because I want to try to get through as many of these as we can, as well as we can. Some we'll look at, but 1 Corinthians 3 and 4 talks about this, as well as 2 Corinthians 5. So if you want to jot those down and look up what we're talking about, if this interests you, the judgment for believers, the judgment seat of Christ is in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4 and 2 Corinthians 5. And there it basically says that we are, he uses the metaphor of a house, of a burning house. And some of the things we do last, like you know, wood, hay, and straw are burned away, but, but stones, costly, these costly, precious stones remain. Sort of like when a, a house burns, the only thing standing is the chimney. Uh, of course, chimneys these days are made of you know fiberglass and stuff, but you, you get the idea. And it's not that uh, our lives are burned up, but that, that Christ so thoroughly judges our works that it's like fire judging a house. And what, what is good remains, and we will receive a reward what remains. And the good news is every Christian gets at least some reward. We're told each one will receive their reward. Okay, any like question? Yes, yes. We may smell like smoke. That's funny hearing. All right, anybody got a follow-up question to that? <laughs> good. It's not something you need to fear. And by the way, it could happen today. The judgment seat of Christ happens right after the rapture, which could happen at any moment. So, Okay, next question. These sort of relate to each other. I tried to organize them that way. Here's the next question. When Jesus returns to earth, and then the, the, the verse that's in parentheses here is 1 Corinthians 4.14, um, and I might just tweak that question. When Jesus returns... He doesn't return to earth in 1 Corinthians 4.14, that's the rapture. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Is my understanding correct that we die, we sleep, until we are resurrected and reign with Christ for a thousand years, then we go to the new heaven? I'm glad you asked about this. It seems that your question is really not so much on the order of things. But if it is on the order of things, I want to encourage you to make a like a $10 or less purchase. Uh, Insight for Living's got a great little bookmark timeline of future events. If you go to their website, insight.org, and just search their store for bookmark, I think is this and maybe one other one, but you can't miss it. And, I mean, this is wonderful. You can use it for a bookmark. You can use it for a straight edge, which is what I use it for. But it's also got the timeline of... Biblical events on one side and then scriptures on the back. So if you're reading through the Bible and you think, now wait a minute, what's the order of things again? This shows you the rapture of the church is next, then the judgment seat of Christ for believers happens right after that, and then you've got the, the seven years of tribulation, the second coming of Jesus, uh, and there's a whole lot more details on here. But I sort of get from the question here that you're asking also about the sleep part of it, because the follow-up questions that come after that. There is, uh, there's nothing in the scripture that, uh, this is such a common mistake, the Bible never shows that at death our souls sleep, but they are always conscience. You always see that they are conscience. In fact, um, the, the reference to sleep is not in reference, it's not a metaphor for the soul, it is a metaphor for the body. Because if you sleep, then you also do what? You awake. Someone who is sleeping awakes. If, uh, if you're sleeping and you don't awake, you're just, you're just dead. But if, you, if a body is sleeping, then a body awakes. So the sleeping is a metaphor that talks about the body. The body rests, and then the body awakes. It's, a, it's really a, a promise of resurrection. But the soul, whenever you see a soul in the, in the Bible, uh, particularly in the New Testament, uh, the parables of Jesus in Luke 16, you've got the, uh, the rich man and Lazarus very awake, very much present. Abraham is awake, you know, he's speaking with Abraham. Um, and then even in the book of Revelation, you've got Christians who have died, are talking with God and they are not yet in their bodies. Uh, The Apostle Paul also verifies this a couple of places. He says in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, he says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He also says in Philippians 1, verse 23, that he desires to depart and be with Christ. Okay, any follow-up questions to that? Okay, wait for the uh, mic, Ed, if you don't mind. Or tell me, and then I can be thinking, you can ask it again. (laughs) So the unbeliever, when they die, their spirit goes to... mm, Are you just not wanting to say hell? (laughs) Well... (laughs) You can say hell. This is church. Oh, okay. So they go to Sheol. But once you walk out the door, you can't say it. Uh, Correct. I appreciate you asking that. Actually, they don't go to hell, at least initially, because hell is the lake of fire; it's the eternal abode. They do go to um, a place that's referred to in the Bible as Hades or Sheol. In Old Testament, it's called Sheol. Okay. Yes. and actually, in the Old Testament, this is getting into a little more the theology of the afterlife. But in the Old Testament, Sheol has two levels. You've got those of the unbeliever, and you've got those of the believer. And in the Old Testament, the, the, the part of Sheol that was for the believer was called paradise. Uh, this is why when Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's referring to that that. that, that blessed layer of Sheol. Uh, sometimes it's also called Abraham's bosom. And then uh, after, sometime after the resurrection of Christ, when Christ actually had died for all the sins, obviously at that point in the Old Testament, then when Christ ascended to heaven. And the Bible doesn't tell us when it happened, but at some point the, those in the upper level of Sheol, as it were, are now in heaven. So they were still in paradise. It was still great. Um, Luke 16 also talks about this, where you've got Abraham's bosom, that parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And there is this great chasm Jesus describes, or Abraham describes, between the lost and uh, the saved. So, But to answer your question, yes, they get a body as well. But it's probably a temporary, well, it is a temporary body. I remember sitting right here in this class about right where rich is st- waving his hand. Lawson, we've got another... Uh, I have a quick one. Do you want to sing, or what's <laughs> happened? Uh, you don't want to hear that, no. I have a question. Now, I'm going to ask a question. that I've asked this of a couple of you in here already. If you already know the answer, don't say it immediately. Now, now Wayne, you know the answer, but let people think about it for a minute. Um, I know you're expecting it to be something silly, because it's from me, but no, it's not. <laughs> When we arrive in heaven, we will see something there that is man made. What is it? Something in heaven that is man made. Uh, The clue is that the answer is in Luke. That helps. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll let you chew on that, and then before we're done, we'll tell you the answer. The answer is not in the Bible, it's sort of inferred. But um, Don likes to give us these burr under the saddle. Okay, so, Rich, you had your hand up. Yeah, the, the thing, I guess, where I see some haziness is we will be known to others. And I guess my question is, how is a soul, and I think that's just that we don't really understand what the soul is. How does a soul be known to others? And I think that's part of maybe where the Jehovah's Witnesses and others come up with soul sleep, maybe, because they have no idea what's happening. So, Well, we aren't disembodied spirits. We aren't souls that just float around. I had a friend one time sort of jokingly said, he thinks that when we die, we go to heaven and we're all in little glad bags. <laughs> so, But again, Luke 16 is the only parable that uh, Jesus tells about the afterlife in this sense, and it's very instructive on a number of levels, but one of the things that it implies, if not out, flat out says, is that we will have a body during this intermediary state. And like I said, I was sitting about right where you were, Dr. Toussaint was standing right here, and he said that and I remember I wanted to throw a penalty flag up on the stage because I thought, no, we don't have bodies. We get bodies that are at the resurrection. We don't have bodies in heaven now. And I went home and looked and thought, doggone it, he's right. <laughs> we do have some sort of intermediary body because evidently God did not create us to be without a body. He created us to have a body at every stage of our existence and to always be cognizant, awake, as it were. So how, how that temporary body blends with our resurrected body that's in the dust, uh, only God knows. But to your additional question there, how will we know each other? We aren't told how, just that we know we will. Like at the, the, um, the transfiguration, Peter knew it was Moses and Elijah, but no one said, by the way, Peter, that's Moses and Elijah. He just knew it. And how we're going to know that, we don't know, but we will we will know each other. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13 says we will know fully even as we are now fully known. All right, any other follow-ups? We're running short on time here. Time flies when you're talking questions. Okay, let's see. We have talked to that one. We've done that one. Um, Okay, here's another one. If dead Christians have been in a beautiful heaven for years and now must return to earth for a thousand years at the Kingdom, might that be a big disappointment? <laughs> well, let me, let me ask you a question. Don't you want to be where Jesus is? Jesus is going to be in the Kingdom. It will not be a disappointment at all because the goal of history is that thousand years, the second coming of Christ. I mean, when we read the Bible. The whole Bible is going toward Revelation. The whole book of Revelation is going toward the second coming and the second coming in Revelation 19, and then you just got chapter you know, 20, 21, and 22. But um, the whole goal of history is that thousand years of the kingdom of God. And we only know it's a thousand years because the revelation tells us. Prior to that, we didn't know, just that it was a literal physical kingdom. The Old Testament is full of promises of the kingdom. And the kingdom is not heaven. You know, When we go up to heaven, it's not heaven as it is now. The kingdom is Christ reigning on this earth, this earth, this earth for a thousand years and all of us reigning with him. So no, it will not be a disappointment at all. It is the goal of history. And here's the question that relates to that as well. The wonderful attributes of heaven found in Revelation 21, such as no more tears, no more death, no mourning, no no, no pain, are not promised when a person dies and goes to heaven. Revelation 21 is a depiction of the new heaven on earth, and you only get there after you die, and are resurrected and reign with Christ for a year. So you're right in the sense that Revelation does describe the eternal state, but it is also a description of the new Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem, we're told, in the eternal state, when God makes the new heaven and the new earth, that new Jerusalem is going to sort of descend. We're told it comes down. And whether it lands on the new earth or it hovers above the new earth, we don't know. But it, this new Jerusalem is likely, and again, this is where Scripture is not 100% clear, but I think, and many think as well, That this New Jerusalem is what Jesus was referring to when he said, I go away to prepare a place for you. So that place is described with the beautiful terms of, you know, the streets of gold and the pearly gates and all that. And Jesus has been making this so far now for 2,000 years. This is going to be a magnificent, magnificent place. So here again we have the timeless truths that heaven is not just a place, but it is also in the presence of God the abode of God, where there are no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. So there are elements of the eternal state that are also true today if you die. Um, what else? Anybody got a follow-up on that one? Okay, maybe got time for a couple more. Uh, again, same subject. When we come back to earth for a thousand years, what will we do? Where will we live? Will we get a job? Will we be back in our home city? <laughs> I sure hope I don't go back to my home city. I would not want to spend a thousand years in San Antonio. <laughs> Though I'm sure in the kingdom it'll be much better. Well, again, the Old Testament talks a-, a plenty about this kingdom. Most of the promises, when you see it referring to a wonderful place, you know, the lion and the lamb and, the, and the, the child reaching into the snake hole and everything being okay. That's a reference to the kingdom. And as far as what will we do, uh, we will t- we're told in Revelation that we will reign with Christ. And we have in some of Jesus' parables or some of his teachings, specifically in Matthew 25 with the parable of the talents, that the master commends each servant the very same, even though they have Uh, had different levels of responsibility. They get the same, exact same commendation. And then Luke 19, also in the parable of the minas, shows that servants take charge of cities. So we will be ruling over cities. Which city? I don't know. Harry, what city would you like to have? Not San Antonio. Antonio. Okay. Well, I'm with you there. So we, we don't know, you know, where exactly what we'll be doing, what ruling with Christ looks like, but we will be reigning under the authority of Jesus over this earth. And there will be unbelievers still in the kingdom um, because, well, it's probably too detailed to get into, but at the end of that, there's going to be a big rebellion. And so we're still, you know, keeping order, as it were, under the authority of Christ, which should be very, very interesting. Okay, Uh, we probably should start Let's we'll do one more. Is there such thing as near-death experiences? We hear a lot of people saying they saw Jesus and angels in heaven. My understanding is this one can only happen when we are actually dead. <laughs> yes, that's true. Does the Bible address this? It's such a great question because we have to be very careful of making doctrine out of our experiences. We should question experience, because we, our senses can be confused. Um, what's that sense of a pilot when he's not using his instruments, and he's trying to just fly by the seat of his pants, and he ends up crashing? What's that called? There's a better term for that. Mike, you know what I'm talking about? And I, I, I'd care. Vertigo? OK, well. When a When a pilot is not using his instruments and he's flying based on his what he senses as a, still well, whatever it is, you get the idea. You get the idea. In reading the Bible, we have to we have to filter our experiences through scripture and not filter scripture through our experiences. So all this to say, there have been many cases of those on their deathbed who, seem, who say they seem to see the beyond, you know, that they're talking to people or they're looking. Uh, I'll never forget hearing about what uh, Steve Jobs' last words were. You know what Steve Jobs' last words were, according to his sister? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And then he died. So who knows what he was seeing. It probably wasn't the next iPhone. But still, again, we can't make doctrine out of experiences, but there have been many cases of those on their deathbed who give the impression that they're seeing something that's coming. But then they go ahead and die, and they stay dead. It's these, The challenge is those who die and come back to life and then write best-selling books. And one of those, for example, just as an example, is the one called Heaven is for Real. It's about the little boy who uh, you know, dies and goes to heaven and sees all this stuff and comes back and then explains it all, and then they write this book about it. And I read the book, because I wanted to understand what the fad was, and I marked error after error of it contradicting the Bible. I said, well, if he saw it, okay, but that doesn't mean it's true, because the Bible directly contradicts that. Plus, and here to me is sort of the, the trump card, the Apostle Paul had an experience that we know for sure he had, because the Bible's not gonna lie, In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says that he's not sure if he was in the body or out of the body, meaning if it was a vision or if he actually died and went to glory. So whether he was dead and experiencing it or whether he was a vision and experiencing it, he said he saw things that man is not permitted to tell. So if Paul can't tell us, (laughs) then the best-selling books probably shouldn't be doing it either. So, all right. Um... And then I'll just finish it because this is the last one on my page, and that'll help me. Did Job believe in the resurrection? Seems like he did. Job 19, verse 25 through 27, he says, Even if my skin is destroyed, yet my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall behold. So Job didn't have a Bible. How he got that, we don't know. But it seems he did believe in a resurrection. Announcements. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you.